From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razlazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. Last Saturday's deadly twin bombings in Ankara, which killed 128 people, have intensified the anger against President Erdogan and his government. If you go online, uh, there are three footages on, on YouTube, which actually show the riot police beating up people with batons and firing tear gas, while you can still see the fumes of explosions. This week, we'll have a conversation with Istanbul-based political scientist Dr. Osman Shahin about the massacre in Ankara and the increasing frequency of attacks on peaceful gatherings in Turkey. Also this week, journalist and filmmaker David Sheen talks to us about the anti-African immigrant racism in Israel. All this coming up on this edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. On Saturday, two powerful bombs turned the peaceful rally in Ankara into a bloody nightmare. According to the leftist pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, HDP, so far 128 people have been killed and over 500 injured, some of them in critical condition. The anger against the government of President Erdogan has been evident in the aftermath of the massacre as tens of thousands of people took to the streets, shouting slogans against the government, chanting, Murderer Erdogan! Murderer police! Immediately following the horrific attack, the government censored news coverage, banned all photographs and any associated images that, quote, create fear and panic, end of quote. Officials warned that any Turkish media organizations violating the ban would face, quote, permanent blackout, end quote. Shahram Agamir spoke with Istanbul-based political scientist Dr. Osman Shaheen about the train station bombing in Ankara and about civil society organizations and political parties which took part in the planned peace rally Saturday in Ankara. Main organization uh, was DISC, actually. It's called uh, Revolutionary Workers' Union. It's a trade union as you can understand from the name, which was established, if I am not mistaken, in 1967 as an alternative to Turkish. Turkish was a kind of state-sponsored American-type you know, trade union, whereas DISC was the leftist type of organization. So DISC called for the peace rally. It was a peace rally, as you very well know, after 7 June elections, I think in 20th of July, if I am not mistaken, the war between the PKK and the Turkish army restarted and it claimed hundreds of lives and uh, we have an election ahead. So the major goal of this peace rally was to make a strong stand for peaceful you know, resolution of the conflict and if that's not possible, as soon as possible, you know, at least provide a ceasefire up until the elections. Other organizations which participated in this event were, you know, again, civil society organizations with leftist socialist leanings and two political parties. One is HDP, pro-Kurdish leftist party, and the other is CHP, the Kemalist party. Osman, the October 10 twin bombings in Ankara have been characterized as the worst terror attack in the history of modern Turkey. 
How has the Turkish government responded to the twin bombings in Ankara? Well, I will say nothing unexpected or surprising. Well, as usual, the Turkish government denied any responsibility and claimed that security was not unlax, which was actually a false statement. Those who live in Turkey will know that any rally organized by leftist factions will always meet heavy security measures in Turkey. Most of the time, the police would prevent it illegally. I say illegally because right to demonstrate in Turkey is a constitutional right. It's in the constitution. You can get the English version of, of it and read it and it's there. But, you know, despite that, I have seen many occasions uh, where the police prevented it. But on that day of the massacre, well, simply, and this is, you know, statements by many participants in that meeting, there was no police. For instance, a journalist from Hurriyet, uh, one of the major mainstream media institutions, newspapers in Turkey, he says that he saw only three traffic police on the day of the massacre, which is quite unusual, I must say. And on the day of this massacre, in a press conference, Reuters journalist, she asks the question to the ministers of interior affairs and justice whether they think about resigning due to their responsibility for lack of security, and the justice minister met this question with a laughter. He felt that this question was not a real question, but a joke. A, a laughter so, in the wake of such a horrific incident. Yes, uh, he thought that the question that this journalist, this female journalist asked, was funny. She asks whether you are going to resign or what, you know, because people think that you have some sort of responsibility in that, and he laughs. Speaking to reporters, co-chair of the Leftist People's Democratic Party, HDP, Selahattin Demitraj, mentioned that police forces attacked the scene of the explosions in Ankara with tear gas soon after the incident and hindered the access of ambulances. He added it was obvious that there was an intention to increase the number of deaths. He said, and I quote him here, we are facing a state mindset that has become a mafia, murderer, and serial killer that wants to take society captive. What do you make of Mr. Demirtas's remarks? And does his assessment resonate with a significant segment of the population? First, I have to tell you that Mr. Demirtas does not talk without proof. If you go online, uh, there are three footages on, on YouTube which actually show the riot police beating up people with batons and firing tear gas while you can still see the films of explosions. There were some members of Association of Turkish Physicians in that Peace Valley, and right after the meeting, those physicians, because they were physicians, they were trying to help the wounded. But they had to flee because they couldn't breathe due to tear gas. There is also another footage, again on YouTube, which shows that the people, again right after the explosion, had to fight the riot police to open the road for ambulances. So he is not making any allegations, he is just stating the plain truth. It's online, you can see it. Second, just a day before this peace rally in Rize, Rize's hometown of Mr. President, President Erdogan, a convicted mafia boss, his name is Sedat Peker. He called for a rally in support of governing AKP and Mr. Erdogan. And now I quote his words. 
the words of this mafia boss, one day we will spill the blood of those traitors. And by those traitors, he actually refers to anybody who is leftist, because who is a leftist is practically a traitor in his eyes. And I promise you, he says, my fans, there will be a lot of blood. In Turkish, oluk oluk kanakatacağız, he says. This is a mafia boss calling for a rally attended by you know hundreds of people in the middle of a town and protected by the police, and he makes those statements just a day before this peace rally. I'm not saying that you know Sedat Peker, this mafia boss, is responsible for the bombings, but it actually reflects upon or sheds a light upon the mindset of the state and the government in Turkey. So you tell me, what would you think of a state apparatus that allowed and protected the rally of this mafia boss while attacking those people in Ankara who were actually trying to recover their dead and wounded from explosions? So the classical state theory, political theory 101, tells me that people submit a part of their sovereignty to the state so that the state, this abstract institution, will protect their property and lives. I do not see that kind of state in Turkey. In Turkey, the state is above all. But it must be citizens first. But here in Turkey, I personally think that the state can do anything to its citizens and then justify those actions, those illegal actions most of the time, by referring to the interests of the holy, you know, quote-unquote, holy Turkish state. Therefore, I think that his statements resonate with an important part or segment of the Turkish society, foremost the Kurdish people, Alevis and leftists in Turkey. Osman, Mr. Demirtas and others have drawn parallels between the October 10th massacre in Ankara and two recent bombings, one in HDP's Diyarbakir rally in June and the Suruj massacre of July 2015. Referring to these bombings in Ankara, he said, and I quote, the forces behind this massacre will not be revealed either because there is an explicit force behind it, just like in Diyarbakir and Suruj. Mm-hmm. Mr. Demirtas is charging the Turkish state or certain elements of it with being complicit in these killings. Can you talk about that and help us understand which forces would possibly benefit from such atrocities. I think I must say it is not only Mr. Demirtas, but even some government officials, including Deputy Prime Minister Numan Kurtuluş, for instance. He just made a statement early in the morning or late in the evening yesterday. I, I am not really sure, but he talked about resemblances or parallels between the Ankara massacre and the previous two massacres, the one in Diyarbakir and Suruç. So we can argue that the same terrorist cells you know, organized, sponsored by ISIL, probably instigated these attacks in Ankara. And here, Mr. Demirtas, he refers to the plain fact that those who were masterminds of these attacks in Diyarbakir and Suçna were never found. Well, suicide bombers were, were identified because they were dead already, so, right? We were not even sure and we are not even sure today that the police is looking for the, these masterminds, since Turkish courts immediately issued orders of confidentiality on investigations on the Erbaker, Suç, and Ankara massacres. So we know nothing, simply nothing, about the proceedings and, and investigations. 
So attacks of various magnitudes, again, this is what's happening in Turkey for the last five or six months, if I am not mistaken, attacks of various magnitudes targeted hundreds of HDP offices and even the headquarters of HDP in Ankara, and only a handful are arrested by the Turkish police. And most of these attacks on HDP offices are actually documented. Those who attack branches of HDP in different cities of Turkey, they also, you know, with, with their cell phones, they record it. TV cameras are there, the police are there, but nobody is arrested. And one more thing, this you might find quite interesting. Before the attack in Diyarbakir, which killed, if I am not mistaken, five people, the police actually detained the suspect, Orhan Gökgöz, an ISIL member, who fought with ISIL in Syria. That's Islamic State in Syria. Yes. Yes. He was detained in his hotel two days before the explosion. He was listed as a terror suspect. The police knows that. But however, God knows why, the police releases him. And two days later, he plants the bombs in the meeting arena of HTP. Bombs go off and you know, five people die. How are we going to explain that? I think the second part of the question, who will benefit from such appalling acts? Well, ISIS will definitely benefit from these attacks, as these attacks, uh, especially the one in Ankara, which is the capital of Turkey, yeah, and the bomb actually exploded in the heart of the city. It helps the organization to keep its ruthless and invincible image, especially in the eyes of its sympathizer base. Plus, do not forget that you know these are revenge attacks on Kurds and socialists who inflicted important damages on the image of ISIL in, in Kobane and Talabiyat. Those also who want the continuation of the war between the PKK and Turkish army would also like to see these attacks continue. If the masterminds behind these attacks provoke the war, the continuation of the civil war between the PKK, uh, by the way, I should maybe explain, on the very day this attack happened, the PKK actually declared a unilateral ceasefire. So if this attack can convince or provoke the PKK to resume the fight, this might erode the power of the HDP as a legitimate political actor in the eyes of many in Turkey. And this is something AKP would, would like to see. This actually is one of the major campaigning items of AKP in uh, elections ahead. When you listen to AKP officials, you see that you know they always present HDP and the PKK as one. HDP is a political party. The PKK is an illegal organization, is an armed organization. But AKP officials, the prime minister, the president, ministers of the government, they do not differentiate. They just want the people to perceive the PKK and the HDP as one. The AKP and is the ruling justice and development party, yes, to be clear. Yes, 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 it's the initials. But they can present HDP as a kind of extension of PKK as long as the fights continue. So a peaceful environment will not do the task for them, I must say. And plus, if you have enough cows, you can even postpone the elections. Honestly, we don't know how people will behave in elections. And one thing about Justice and Development Party or AKP is this. This is the political party in Turkey 
which makes opinion polls every other month, every other week, to say the least. So they actually follow the trends much better than any other political active. So maybe postponing the elections is better than having elections on 1st of November. You mentioned the Justice and Development Party, the elements within the state. Is it possible that there are also elements within the military and the security apparatus belonging to the old Kemalist establishment that could benefit from such atrocities? Turkey is a, is a land of conspiracy theories, so I am always open to that kind of thought. I mean, we were educated, trained in, in this way, but let me tell you this. One of the major achievements of the AKP during its years in power was to subdue the military. The military, which actually was a real political actor, was for the first time maybe in Turkish history, subdued by, by a civilian government. Uh, this was something new and novel. But I do not believe that the AKP government has full control over the Turkish military. So if there's enough chaos, there's always potential for a military coup. Well, when you look at the 1990s, JITAM, JITAM was a kind of secret organization within the army, which fought the Kurdish guerrillas, the PKK, by using illegal tactics. So some people argue that JITAM is gone, but we don't know it yet. So maybe Jitem is still there and has a hand in these attacks. I am not really sure, of course. Referring to my first point about this relationship between the military, the AKP, and, and the history of coup in, in Turkey, well, there are three military coups in Turkey, and all these military coups were actually preceded by a chaos. I'm talking about real chaos, people dying. Turkey is a noble laureate Orhan Pamuk has warned mm-hmm. the country could collapse into sectarian conflict. He said a country at, at peace has suddenly found itself at war both against the ISIL, the Islamic State, and the Kurds, referring mm-hmm. to PKK you just mentioned. He's blaming President Erdogan for the brutality displayed in the October 10th massacre in Ankara. Mr. Pamuk added, I'm worried because I know that in the end, Erdogan wants to govern alone at all costs. He doesn't want to share power. Well, uh, civil war is a real possibility in Turkey. I mean, I wouldn't think about it a couple of months ago, but now I really have my doubts. I am coming from a small city called Kırşehir. Kırşehir is a city of around 200,000 people where you have Kurds and Turks uh, living side by side for decades. Uh, for at least, I don't know, 150 years or so. Only a month ago, when uh, the clashes between the PKK and the Turkish army killed a soldier from Kırşehir, a mob started attacking Kurdish shops and bookstores. So 17 shops and bookstores belonging to Kurdish people were set on fire. Again, I see the tension all around streets of Turkey, when people are tense and people are ready to, you know, fight. Even today, there was this uh, national soccer game between Turkey and Iceland. So before the soccer game, there was a kind of a minute of silence. 
people were actually chanting Allahu Akbar and booing. So this shows that, you know, especially in Konya, which is quite a conservative city, some part of the audience who were there didn't have any respect for the victims of Ankara massacre. Osman, what can you tell us about the restrictions that the Justice and Development Party, AKP-led government, has imposed on the Turkish media in the aftermath of the massacre in Ankara? Uh, nothing new, actually. From time to time, we experience quite slow internet I think yesterday or the day before, I was not able to access Twitter for a long time. I always have VPN uploaded on my phone, so the people around me, my girlfriend as well. Kurdish news, uh, news sites are shut down regularly by the government, so they add up new names to those Kurdish uh, news sites, but they're also shut down. And uh, I must tell you, there's no court decision allowing them to do that, allowing the government to do that legally, but they are using Office of Turkish uh, Telecommunications to prevent access to these websites. Again, the government also forced cable companies such as Digiturk, Kablonet, and Tvibu to remove uh, some op- opposition TV stations, including those TV stations affiliated with Fethullah Gülen. He, who yes. used to be an ally of AKP until... Yeah, n- n- no more an ally, uh, but a kind of enemy. Right. right. Now they are, yes. Yeah. Because there was a so, crackdown on his supporters last year. Yes. And yes. earlier this year. Well, I mean, it, it was actually a fight over the ownership of the state and its resources. Sure. Uh, for, the t- for the time being, Erdogan seems to be prevailing, but we don't know what will happen in the next you know, couple of months or years. IMC and Hayat, these are two you know, news stations somehow closer to the Kurdish movement. They were not on these networks anyway. So there's nothing new on the Western Front in this respect. Okay, finally, uh, Osman, uh, you mentioned Mm. there is an upcoming election in November in Turkey. Mm. In the Turkish general election that took place in June of 2015, the ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP, failed to garner sufficient votes to Mm. form a government on its own. Therefore, there is a new election scheduled for November 1st. How will the October 10 tragedy in Ankara impact the upcoming election? Well, again, it will be difficult to say something as voter behavior is quite unexpected, you know. However, at the very least, I would say that this attack increased or furthered polarization in an already polarized society. And those chants in Konya Stadium uh, was a very good example of that. Uh, my guess is that more Kurds will stop voting AKP and shift their allegiances to the HDP. And it is, it is actually a process that was already visible in June 7 elections. Kemalist CHP might increase its votes by 1 or 2 percent. There might also be some nationalists reverting back to the AKP if they blame lack of a uh, single party government for all this chaos. But overall, I do not expect radical changes in modes if, and this is very important, if elections in Turkey remain free and fair. Well, we can say many things about 7 June elections, but we cannot say that these elections were, you know, elections with fraud. They were free and fair elections. If these elections that we will have, that we will hold on 1st of November are also free and fair, 
I don't expect a single party government. I don't expect AKP to increase its votes radically. I actually expect a slight increase in the votes of HDP and, and CHP and a, a slight decrease in the votes of Nations Action Party, MHP, and maybe, maybe a slight increase in the votes of AKP, but that's all. Osman, anything else you want to add? Well, any state needs consent. Consent is legitimation. And if you don't, the consent of the people, all you are left is coercion, okay? I mean, regarding the Kurdish issue, for 10 days, a small town, which has like 160,000 people, a small Kurdish town, they inflicted a curfew on that town for 10 days. And they didn't allow the people to bury their dead. And it was the people of Jizre, I'm talking about the youth, who fought the Turkish army for 10 days. How could we expect the people of Jizre to be loyal to this state if they cannot trust police, if they cannot trust the government? Can you imagine that in that town, the police, by using their megaphones, making announcements, you are all Armenians, and you will pay for that. This is the Turkish police you know, making those announcements. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. You asked me before if civil war is a real possibility with that kind of behavior, with that kind of uh, police, uh, you know, firing tear gas on dead and wounded, uh, using police megaphones to call people, you know, Armenians. It's not an insult in my eyes, but, you know, I know that Turkish nationals, they use Armenians or the word Armenian to insult others. So this was the goal. It's sad, but it's dangerous. It yes. might, might, you might end up with a new Yugoslavia in a matter of weeks before you know it. Dr. Osman Shaheen is an Istanbul-based political scientist. He spoke with Shahram Agamir. You can follow Dr. Shaheen on Twitter at Osman Shaheen. For further analysis on the developing situation in Turkey, please visit jadmagazine.com. We'll provide links on our website at vomina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
the past week, the images of Palestinian protesters being executed by Israeli soldiers have been circulating widely on social media. One of the most shocking videos shows a 13-year-old Palestinian boy in East Jerusalem bleeding to death as a Jewish settler verbally abuses him while the Israeli police watch. The rampant racism has not spared the African migrants in Israel. Independent journalist and filmmaker David Sheen has been closely following the development of widespread and officially sanctioned anti-African racism in Israel. In a two-part interview, David Sheen spoke with Khalil Bendib about the dehumanizing and racist discourse in Israel against Palestinians, Africans, and other non-Jews by top Israeli officials, political and religious leaders, and the vigilante attacks they inspire. Let's start with your video, Arad, Off Limits to Africans. Mm. It's a short one, but it's quite uh, revealing. It documents a controversy around the mayor of Arad. This is a small city in the Negev desert in the south of Israel. This mayor had kept a contingent of African residents, my understanding some of them born in Israel or at least been there for a number of years, from entering his town. And after Israel's high court had forced the government to release 1,200 non-Jewish African asylum seekers from detention, and they were headed for Arad because that was the one place they could go. The mayor of that town ordered police to monitor the entrance to town and prevent them from entering. So you went around and interviewed people in that city to see what their feelings were. Tell us about what you found among these people and what their reaction was. Just to take it back a little bit, these African men actually were not born in Israel. That's part of the drama of their lives. They were, for the most part, born in Sudan and, and Eritrea, some of them. And these men are part of a group of, let's say, 60, 66,000 people who migrated to Israel in the last 10 years, let's say, from sub-Saharan Africa. And upon arriving, they've been met with great hostility from the government. And the government has put in place various different programs in order to try to uh, immiserate them. This is in, in the words of the Israel's interior minister, who determines policy regarding who enters and exits the country. So he said, you'll make their lives miserable until they leave. And Israel didn't want to outright deport them, send them back to the tortures they fled from. That would be like so grievous of a human rights violation. But it said, okay, we'll make your lives miserable until you kind of give up and say, okay, I'll leave of my own accord, so-called. So one of the, the methods that he uses till this day to do that is rounding these African refugees off the streets of Tel Aviv and other cities and rounding them into these camps in the desert in the middle of nowhere on the border with Egypt. And they've been called concentration camps by Israel's president, Reuven Rivlin. Whatever you want what to they call are. it, it's a camp because the Supreme Court has a bit of a moderating influence, kind of tries to water down the worst excesses of the government. So they've actually had to scale back some of its most horrifying aspects. So now they actually have furloughs. They're allowed to leave for a couple hours in the daytime and, and walk around into the vast desert surrounded by shooting ranges. But the point is, they were kept there and they didn't know what their fate would be. The Supreme Court, the law that rounds them up was challenged and the Supreme Court said, yes, it's 
gross violation of human rights for them to be there, and they haven't committed any crimes. Their only crime is being not Jewish, essentially. And so it ordered their release. The government said, okay, we're going to follow this time, and they, they released these men, but on the condition they said that they're not allowed to enter Tel Aviv or Eilat, which are the two places where African refugees live in any serious numbers. So you got out of this concentration camp. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to your friends who you don't have any money. You haven't been working. You've been kept in jail this whole time. The government doesn't give you any money. So you're now out and you need a place to sleep. You want to go to your friends. But no, the government says you can't go to Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is now a sundown town for Africans. Eilat is a sundown town for Africans. So where are you going to go? And you're trying to figure out what other Israeli towns or cities will, where you can you know, find a place to stay. And sure enough, as you pointed out, the mayor of Arad, and he was not the only one, mayor of another town, actually, a couple of days later, did the exact same thing. The mayor of Bichan also not only announced that he was going to prevent Africans from entering, he'd heard that a couple Africans had made their way to the city and he was going to seek them out and kick them out of town. So that's the backdrop. So I had to get into that so people could understand the context of how an Israeli mayor would say that Africans are persona non grata. And I wasn't surprised by the reactions of people you, you introduced by talking about what kind of reactions we got. For the most part, you know, everyone said that they do not want African people in the city. The only person who had a different story to tell was actually himself a Palestinian citizen of Israel. That was striking. Also, the one guy who, who had something nice to say about the Africans yeah. was himself an outsider. He was an Arab. It's sad that this is what we've come to, but after years and years of the government inciting hatred of Africans, which of course tapped into this decades-old incitement campaign against Palestinian people, I wasn't surprised that people came up with these kinds of answers, because these are the messages that the government is putting out, that these people are criminals, and that they're savages, and that they're terrorists, and, they're, and of course there's Rapists. You know, there's no evidence of any of this. They have lower crime rates by far than Israelis. By all means, they should have been seen as, first of all, a blessing, as any immigrant group should be seen as. And second of all, kind of should have been flown, doors flown open, you know, with warm welcome to these people who left genocide and ethnic cleansings in Sudan or escaped from dictatorial regimes like Eritrea. How does one migrate into Israel when we know that those who have attempted that before, mostly Palestinians, try to come back to their homes, are shot on sight? How do you migrate into a fortress like Israel? Yeah, well, as we see from the last couple of weeks, the country's not hermetically sealed or not hermetically sealed yet. Don't forget, Israel is in northeast Africa. So it's actually right at the crux, you the know, right at North the Africa, center yes. point between mm -hmm. Africa and Asia and Europe. And so it has a border with Egypt, and that border is, you know, vast. It's you know, hundreds of kilometers, and there's a desert on the other side of it. So the government never spent the money to construct a serious border fence on the border with Egypt. Since the early 1980s, it's had a cold peace, but still a peace deal with Egypt, and Egypt has never violated that peace deal by invading or anything like that. So it didn't see the need to spend huge amounts of money to build an insurmountable barrier on the African border. 
But when these African refugees started entering the country, and, and that really started in 2006, we're talking about, that's when the government decides, okay, we need to prevent other Africans from entering. And so then they built this, you know, at great cost, this really high-tech fence that now is very, very, very difficult. If before, you know, all there was was a simple barbed wire fence that you could climb with not too much difficulty if you were really motivated, now that's not possible. It's exceedingly difficult to do so. And they were allowed, not easily, but they were allowed in at first because, for that very reason, because Initially, there was a little bit of sympathy. You know, these people are fleeing horrible stories in sub-Saharan Africa, and so they were allowed into the country after, you know, a quick check to make sure they don't have any communicable diseases. They don't represent any kind of military threat or anything, so they were allowed in. But that grace period didn't last long. The government didn't provide them with any sustenance, but they also forbade them from working so they couldn't sustain themselves either. And then, of course, it just sent them to the slums of South Tel Aviv. But I'm going ahead in the story. You asked me about how come they're yes. able to make it in yes, and yes. Palestinians can't. So that it's the construction of the fence, really, that sealed that loophole, so to speak. So going back to a previous wave of immigrants, these were not just welcomed, but actually it was partly engineered by Israel, going back to the North Africans from mm. Morocco, from Algeria, Tunisia, who happened to be Jewish, those also suffered in their own type of discrimination at the hand of the Ashkenazi majority back then. Is this area of Israel still largely Mizrahi and Sephardic? No, Arad isn't necessarily... Arad has its own interesting history, but it's not necessarily one of the development towns that we think of as being like Mizrahi strongholds like, for example, Dimona or yes. Yerucham, like one of those. It, it has its own interesting demographic. The reason the, I was asking was that sure. there was this undertone throughout your documentary, your video, of why us? Are we less worthy than Tel Aviv or Eilat? I mean, mm. why do they dump these, in their words, a very undesirable contingent? Right. Upon us, I was thinking maybe they feel a little bit slighted. Maybe it goes back to that kind of history where they themselves were not put in the most desirable parts of, of mm. occupied Palestine. Well, the sentiment that you saw there is about living in the periphery, living in a small town, living in a society where there aren't a lot of economic opportunities, frankly. Mm. And that's certainly the case regardless of the ethnic origins of the people living there, that they feel, you know, hard done, not necessarily hard done by, but just like dire straits or difficult straits. But what you're describing, the kind of the pigmentocracy of people who themselves are people of color or would be classified as people of color, at least in other parts of the world, being discriminated against for not being Northern Europeans or Eastern Europeans, and then themselves resenting that a new wave of immigrants that comes after them then competes with them for resources. That's certainly the case in other parts of the country, like South Tel Aviv, which is probably the largest locus for African immigration in recent years. So yeah, you, you do see that resentment in those poor neighborhoods of South Tel Aviv. One of the people you interviewed is this old Spanish speaker, it was interesting seeing him speak Spanish rather than Hebrew. He said, it's not a racial problem. These guys are not like the Ethiopian Jews, for example. Those are okay because they, they integrate better. So if it's not a racial problem, what is it? Well, it's interesting. Um, 
I interviewed an Israeli academic, Chen Anbam Domanovich, a little while ago, who, and she actually studied how Israeli officials discussed Ethiopian Jews before they immigrated to Israel. And she went through all the documents, and it was really interesting. She found that there was this hesitance to, to ascribe racial terms. She found that Israeli officials, they didn't want to say the word black. They didn't want to ascribe meaning to that and say this is the reason why. Whenever they you know, were called upon to explain why they don't want, and, and that should be said, that for years and decades, the Israeli government actually tried to prevent Ethiopian Jews, not encourage, but prevent Ethiopian Jews from immigrating to Israel. It's a story that's not very well known, and it'll be revealed a little bit more in an upcoming article I have coming out in a publication next month. But the short of it is that in the Israeli discourse, the idea is not that it's these people's uh, ethnicity or racial phenotype that causes them to be, in the eyes of these government officials, inferior in some way and not deserving of, of immigrating, but it's their culture. So by putting it on culture as opposed to something genetic, these people felt like that it was okay, like it's not racist anymore because you're only talking about the inferiority of their culture, not of their genes. Of course, it's just a way of sanitizing racism. And so in the case of these African immigrants, the idea is I mean, sometimes it is out-and-out racism, and there's no attempt to whitewash it. Other times they'll say, oh, it's their culture. And in the case of some of them, they'll say it's their religion. I mean, we're talking of the refugees who have come from Sudan and Eritrea. About 50% are Christian, 50% are Muslim. So for some, it's this Islamophobia, but there's no shortage of hatred, just regular old hatred of non-Jewish people that's pretty pervasive. And whether they use racial words to describe it, it's, it's kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other, I find. It brings up an interesting question, the question of race, which I think most progressives understand as a social construct. But especially in the case of Israel, it's a little bit <laughs> laughable that the race would be so important as opposed to the religion. Because I know there's that old and very deeply anchored myth that somehow Jews are a race, like any other race. <laughs> but is that something that most Israelis cling to or believe, that they're actually a race regardless of where they come huh. from? You have a few different things going on here. If we try to boil it down to just one, we will you know, we'll find it lacking, our answers, because there isn't just one system of oppression or one matrix of control here. There's, there's classism, there's nativism, you know, people who came to the land earlier think they have more of a right you know, than people who came to the land later. That's also common. And then I also don't need to explain white supremacy. That clearly is a big problem in the United States of America till this day. People with less pigment feel they deserve more privileges than people with more pigment. So all of those things are operating in Israel. And then in addition to that, there's Jewish supremacy, where people feel that if they're Jewish, they deserve more privileges, or if they're more Jewish, they deserve more privileges. And so these all intersect in the case of these African refugees, because they came with nothing, because they fled. They came last, because they just arrived. They're the darkest skinned. They're even darker than Ethiopians. And, well, in the case of Eritreans, they're the same tone. These are the same people, ethnically. But in the case of Sudanese, they're some of the darkest skinned brothers you'll ever see. And then certainly they're the least Jewish. And so all these things add up 
And sometimes the rhetoric is, oh yeah, they're African, you know, and whatever that occupies in the minds of people. We have black Jews in Israel, as you well know. You alluded to them earlier, the Ethiopians. They mm-hmm. do experience a great deal of racism in this country. And at the same time, there are people who, you know, struggle to get past that. You could say that perhaps the treatment of Ethiopian Jews in Israel is not so dissimilar from the treatment of African Americans in the United States. Of course, it's a broad generalization, but just to give you a sense of what's happening here. So it's, there is racism, and that's why there's protests. Just a couple months ago, we saw you know, thousands of people in the streets demanding an end to racially biased police brutality here in Israel. But the difference is they're Jews. So while some people doubt the fact that they are Jews because they're black, so if they're black, how could they be Jews? But the general Israeli consensus is, yes, that they are Jews. But the case of these African refugees, they aren't. And because for so many decades, people have heard this messaging from the government. This is a Jewish state, and everyone hates us, and we have to stick together, and it's us versus the world, and we can't trust anyone. And these messages filter through. They're promoted in the media. They're promoted in the education system from the youngest age. And then this is the result, that even the people who are represent no threat whatsoever, who are deserving of help and who need help, they're essentially spat on and shat on uh, just because they're non-white, non-Jews. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to like pin it only on race. It's, it's a real potent cocktail of hatred combining the white supremacy and the Jewish supremacy and the other stuff. Another video that was very provocative and powerful titled Israel's War on Africans. You start with a very interesting exercise, this interesting fictitious situation (laughs) in which you reverse roles and Jews are the ones persecuted and you imagine this happening in in the U.S. today. Tell us about that video. Give us a few examples of actual things that were said and then reverse it. That was a very good fictional exercise. This is the situation that we're in. We're in a situation where so many things have happened that I find incredulous partly because I have outsider eyes. I grew up elsewhere. And if in the North American context, if any of these things would happen, I think people would be shocked to their core. But they occur in Israel and they're barely talked about, (laughs) let alone protested. So I laid it out saying the director of the largest hospital in Philadelphia Mm-hmm. decides that Jews will be excluded or it will be segregated in different wards. And then, of course, this never happened in Philadelphia, but in Israel, it really did. Tel Aviv is the uh, sister city of Philadelphia, and this actually did happen in Tel Aviv, where the director of Ichilov Hospital, largest hospital in Tel Aviv, said that banning Africans from certain... I mean, there was a little bit of pushback, and some people did protest, and eventually the policy was canceled. But, I mean, this is one after the other after the other. I'll give you more examples in that litany of... Uh, Please do, of, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. It so, was very powerful to do that because it kind of decontextualized the whole problem and showed how mm. bad it really is from the point of view of the receiver, mm. the victim. They smell. We heard yeah. that. Imagine, if you would, that a city councilor in the city of Philadelphia, announces that he wants to install new bus lines, separate bus lines for Jews, because they have diseases and they smell bad. So imagine if the preacher, the largest church in 
West Palm Beach, Florida, says that he's, he organizes hundreds of pastors around the country, and they all sign this uh, theological document, this religious ruling that states that it's a sin for any Christian to sell or even to rent an apartment to a Jewish person. Yeah. These are the kinds of things that are, you know, or let's say in Charlotte, North Carolina, the mayor of the town just sends in police in the middle of the night, and they round up all the Jews in town, and they stick them on buses, and they drive them to the next town and dump them in some public park. Mm-hmm. Like, shocking, horrifying stuff, a dystopic version of America we'd never want to live in or allow to, to come into being. And yet, everything that I've just said actually did take place and does take place in Israel, but substitute Jews for Africans. And, and this is the reality. This is 2012 when I'm talking about this. Since then, we've seen further descent into a spiral of uh, sickening racist directives. Sudanese population has been ethnically cleansed already. When I say that, I, I mean by that term, ethnic cleansing means like when you force a group of people of you know, of certain ethnic group to leave an area because you want the area to be ethnically pure, and you do it by either force or the threat of force. It was quite so edifying we, because mm-hmm. of the um, the widespread consensus, or at least seeing so many officials, mm-hmm. people who are there and, and saying these things in public and proudly mm-hmm. so. It was quite edifying. It wasn't just uh, the grassroots or something that's hush-hush. Mm-hmm. It was actually out in the open. A little bit what uh, Donald Trump did a few mm-hmm. weeks ago by declaring that Mexicans <laughs> were murderers and rapists. It's an interesting parallel you make. It's between mm. really today's Israel and the United States in 1850 or so, mm. when, when these things were happening and they were out in the open. Mm-hmm. And you keep making that parallel, not so much to today's U.S. or Canada or Australia, but to 150 years ago, 200 mm-hmm. years ago. Basically, of the various laws and regulations that Israel is put into place in order to drive the Africans out. Essentially, it suspends their rights, their basic rights, in the way that all that is required for them to be rounded up and taken to one of these detention centers or whatever you want to call them in the desert is the accusation of a Jewish person. So basically, guilty until proven innocent, without just the mere accusation is enough for the authorities to move on. Right, exactly. Which is something so, we have. You know, I in just this say, yeah. you stole my bike, or you stole my watch, or you stole my phone, and then the police say, okay, well, that's what you say, and then I round you up, and, and there's no real recourse. These are the kinds of policies that Israel's Attorney General put in place, among others. And of course, as we've seen in recent days, that's all that's necessary if you give someone who's racist, that kind of power over a racialized group, they will use it, you know, and they will say, he's holding a knife, he did this to me, he did that to me. And more than anything, it causes people to not leave the house, (laughs) because people don't want to have to go back to the tortures they fled from. So... You know, you're not going to disincentivize African people being here, but when you criminalize them to this extent, then people are going to be afraid to leave the house. 
in recent weeks we've seen, we've described with Donald Trump, just over-the-top racism towards Latino people, really disgusting. I never thought in, you know, we'd see a return to this level of rhetoric in the United States. But it's been super common in Israel in recent years where you have government ministers saying, calling, basically addressing a demonstration of thousands of people in Tel Aviv, you know, anti-African demonstration, and telling some like government ministers, you know, or today government ministers, then they were just lawmakers. Since then they were promoted on the basis of these incendiary remarks and, and calling Africans cancer. And then they set off a thousand people running through the streets of Tel Aviv for hours attacking any dark-skinned person they came across. Smashing beer bottles, or people said, smashing stores, attacking any African person they found. And this is government ministers inciting this stuff. Just a, a couple weeks ago, one of the, the minister who incited that, that race riot, she was complaining about, oh, Israel, it's becoming so PC. I, I called them cancer. They said, I can't call them cancer. Then I tried to call them vermin. They said, no, you can't call them vermin. Oh, no. Like, she was complaining that she wasn't able to call the Africans vermin. This is, this is her complaint. It's just too PC. Come to the point where it's too politically correct. You're not allowed to, for a minister to call a group of people vermin. This is, this is what we've come to, ridiculously But she enough. did eventually apologize for the wrong reasons, though. Well, yeah, yeah. She, <laughs> she then, there was a you know, hullabaloo, so she did apologize, but she did not apologize to Africans for calling them cancer. That's correct. She apologized to cancer victims for comparing them to Africans. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we've come to. So, Bad state of affairs, really. And actually, I don't want to speak too soon, and I'm not... In the United States, I'm not like closely monitoring what's happening there, but if I'm not mistaken, you see in establishment, uh, you know, the, the groups that say that they speak for the Jewish community in the United States, of course, they're not representative, they're not voted for, but the groups that claim to speak on behalf of Jewish people, for years and years and years, to their credit, they always spoke out in favor of immigration reform, of clemency, of basically of a progressive policy in the United States towards undocumented immigrants and such. But we see, if I'm not mistaken, in recent months, kind of stepping away from that. You would think that Trump's remarks and some of the marks of Ben Carson and others would just be over the top and, and that you would see people... Wasn't there a comment where Trump said, someone asked Trump about, you know, we need to round up the Muslims, and he said, oh, yeah, we're going to look into that. Yeah. I mean, that's a call for rounding people up, for outright ethnic cleansing, and very tepid response from the Jewish community. Now, I can't speak to all the reasons why. I'm sure there's lots of factors here, but it's almost like okay. creep. It's values creep. It's why did organized or established leaders of the Jewish community, so-called, why are they pivoting away from outright support for immigrants. And, and I would argue that perhaps one reason might be because they're shifting their alliance to be in line with Israel's position. And since Israel is now taking a really strong anti-immigrant position and rounding up asylum seekers and trying to force them out the country, and that policy, they wouldn't be able to logically defend it if they were in favor of immigration to the United States, but against immigration to Israel. So as to not come out as complete hypocrites, they're actually starting to pivot away from their historic support for immigrants. And to me, that's like doubly shameful. It's bad enough that you're supporting 
Israel's policies towards non-Jewish people, Palestinian people, African people, you know, to drive them out, to make more racially pure so that you can send your kids to uh, some kind of version of the halfway between hedonism and Disneyland so that they can meet other young Jewish people and have a little vacation. And, and, but what's more than that is that you're actually now, in order to cover up for your support of that, you're actually starting to, to allow another a policy of antagony towards immigrants in the United States take place. To me, it's, it's scary. I would think that we want to have a race to the top, but more and more, it seems like we are having a race to the bottom of ethics and values. David Sheen is an independent journalist and filmmaker. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. David Sheen will be speaking about racism in Israel in San Jose on the 21st, in Berkeley, the 22nd, and Oakland on the 25th of October. For more information, please visit ism-norcal.org. That's ism-norcal.org. We'll put this information on our website at bomina.org. Please tune in next week for the second part of this interview. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.